welcome to this edition of the DMZ America podcast, episode number 50. 50, I tell you, 50. It's Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. I'm Scott Stantis coming to you from the right. And I'm Ted Rall coming to you from the left. So, um, Ted, we're going to have the show that's going to have a big, big announcement. That's right. But you won't hear it unless you listen to all of it all the way through. If you skip through to the end, your computer will get a virus and you will die. Is that true? It is absolutely 100% (laughs) sort of true. Not really. As far as you know. (laughs) No, but we really have some very exciting news. I'm stoked. I know Ted is. uh, So stick around for the the big announcement. But uh, the first segment, we're going to be talking about (laughs) Joe Biden trying to stumble us into yet another nuclear conflict. So that's going to be fun. Uh, Two fronts, nuclear war. Yay. Take take that, Napoleon. Go wrong. Hitler. Segment two, we're going to talk about uh, Vice President Kamala Harris and her apparently being removed from, I don't know, history. And the third segment, the big, big announcement. So stick around for all that. Well, Ted, um, (laughs) Vice, I mean, President uh, Biden, uh, he's in Asia. He was in Japan and he was asked, um, he was asked this question and I'm going to play this. So give me a second and uh, tell me, we're going to talk about it. Hold on. Right. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are. That's a commitment we made. Well, not exactly the commitment we made, but you know, uh, you know, I guess facts—they <laughs> no longer matter anymore, right, Ted? <laughs> and that is true. Policy we report all all that we've done in the past, but that does not mean it does not mean that China has the ability has the excuse me. The, the jurisdiction to go in and use force to take over Taiwan. Actually, it so we does. stand firmly with Japan and with other nations that n- not to let that happen. And uh, my expectation is it will not happen. It will not be attempted. My expectation is a lot of it depends upon just how strongly the world makes clear that that kind of action is going to result in long-term disapprobation by the rest of the community. Well, I mean, he used a big word. That was kind of cool. Yeah, I learned a word, actually. I had to look that word up, and I, I thought he was making things up because he makes up a lot of things. But that disapprobation is actually a very good word. So thank you, President Biden. So, Ted, you I mean, you have some expertise in this field, so help us understand why, why going to toe-to-toe with a nuclear power is probably not a great idea on this one. Well, I think a lot of Americans are not very um, aware of the details of exactly what the diplomatic situation is between Taiwan and what we call mainland China. So I'm going to try to just give a tutorial here. Um, You know, I I married into a Taiwanese family. Um, My father-in-law was a very uh, uh, sort of prominent Taiwanese independence activist. So I read read a lot about Taiwan. and, And so that's why I know a lot about this. First of all, Taiwan and Thailand are different places. They are not the same thing. You'd be amazed how many people uh, confuse them. So uh, basically how we got here, I'm not going to go back to the 5,000 year history of China. Um, Taiwan historically has been, has been was part of China. It's an island that's off the coast of eastern um, off not a little north of Hong Kong, um, and it's not that it's uh, pretty close to Taiwan uh, to, to mainland China. Um, basically, historically, whenever the Chinese Empire was strong, 
Uh, it expanded out to include Taiwan whenever it was weak, which has happened many times in its history. Uh, the rule of the of the mainland kind of got uh, decentralized, and people and so they, there was sort of some de facto independence happening in the outlying areas, which Taiwan was one of them. But make no mistake, uh, it's uh, every bit has uh, been historically influenced and part of China many, many, many times. Um, in recent history. Uh, Taiwan was ceded to the uh, to the Empire of Japan after a war was fought in the late 1800s between uh, Japan and China. Um, they they the Chinese signed over the island to them, the island of Formosa, uh, and the the Japanese occupied uh, Taiwan from basically 18 uh, I think 95 or 1896 uh, all the way to the end of World War II. People think that the that a lot of Americans think that mistakenly think that the uh, Japanese invaded Taiwan as part of World War II and the build up to World War II, but that's not true. They had it before, oh, um, I didn't know and. That. And in fact, there's a very strong Japanese influence uh, in Japan, even, I mean, in, in Taiwan. Like, for example, the train lines still run on the left instead of on the right. Uh, they, a lot of older people still speak Japanese. There's a lot of Japanese uh, channels on, on, on cable TV. Um, and so, in fact, uh, I saw uh, one of my um, in-laws' uh, passports was uh, birth, said birthplace, uh, Taipei, Japan, which was really... really kind of a weird trip. So at the end of World War II, 1945, uh, the, the, as part of the surrender terms, uh, Japan uh, dis, uh, agreed to give Taiwan its independence and withdrew its troops and, and went back to Japan. Um, so Taiwan became independent. Um, the, there was a, there's a native indigenous Taiwanese uh, population there. Um, that and there's also Han Chinese uh, population, so they're kind of mixed. The Taiwanese are basically poly ethnically Polynesian, and the uh, the Han Chinese are, are you know what we think of as Chinese. Um, the uh, from 1945 to 1949, Taiwan had uh, an independent Taiwanese-led government and was promised by the United States that it would receive diplomatic recognition and support and would be, and they had, you know, it was a democratically uh, oriented uh, country that, you know, sort of would be in keeping with American values. However, in 1949, uh, there was a seismic event uh, in mainland China, which had been uh, having a civil war and under Japanese, simultaneous to Japanese occupation, dating back to the 1930s, um, the finally, uh, the communists under Mao Zedong defeated uh, the nationalist uh, forces under uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, the, the Mao Zedong's communists marched triumphantly into the capital of Beijing, and uh, the uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, KMT, the nationalists, the Kuomintang, were forced to flee. Um, they decided to go into exile, in, uh, and they fled to Taiwan across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and uh, they arrived and um, they set up shop as the government of Taiwan in of the government of China in exile. So uh, the official diplomatic uh, term for this was the Republic of China. Um, obviously, you might ask, what about that Taiwanese indigenous democratic well, that regime? Yeah, that did kind of occur to me. 
Yeah, so that was an, they were an inconvenience and they were in the way. Uh, the United States, by the way, provided the the ships to evacuate uh, the KMT army across from China to Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese, the the the, the uh, Americans assisted with the following operation. Basically, uh, all the Taiwanese government officials, um, intellectuals, professors, journalists were rounded up and murdered in uh, but what is now known as the February 28th incident. Um, the two, they were basically put in gunny sacks, thrown into the Taiwan Harbor and drowned. Um, so uh, Jesus. They, were, they were wiped out with the help of the, uh, the CIA. Uh, they were identified by the CIA. So the KMT- wait, 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 just let me stop you there and just ask you real quick. So the United States made a promise of support and solidarity with the government and then backed away? That's I know this is unheard of. Um, this is not the kind wow. of be- yeah, they did. They they they, <laughs> they, they shivved them. Um and, wow. and, and well, they uh, drowned them. It they drowned like- them. Yeah, yeah. Drown- shiving might have been uh, more merciful, it's faster. Uh, so yeah, so the, so the um, Chiang Kai-shek set up a, a right-wing authoritarian, uh, sort of quasi-fascist regime on the island, um, and uh, it was American-backed. And so the new state of affairs occurred, which was that uh, the communists uh, ran China. Uh, the and technically, legally, from an American perspective, uh, the Ta- the K- Taiwan, the Republic of China. Uh, KMT was officially recognized as the uh, of real government of China, not the communists, and that um, and the fiction was that at some point uh, the Taiwanese would would well not the Taiwanese the KMT would rally and then they would go back and and kick the communists out of Beijing and take China back. Uh, obviously, this did not could not and did not happen. So, from um, 1949 until uh, I believe it was 1972, is that correct? Um, uh, the Basically, Richard Nixon changed the policy. No, uh, Jimmy, actually, Jimmy Carter codified it. Um, he codified it, but Richard Nixon, um, you know, he was decided to uh, recognize, uh, to provide diplomatic recognition to, uh, to, to communist China, uh, recognizing reality to, you know, and to, to try to start, um, you know, trade uh, arrangements and stuff and lift sanctions. So he went and hung out with, uh, he, he went to China and began that process of normalization of relations. But obviously, um, but China d- w- re- said, okay, as part of our conditions, uh, we don't want you to re- recognize the Republic of China, Taiwan as the government, the real government of China. So, as you point out, under Jimmy Carter, this policy was codified and became known as the uh, One China Policy. So, what that means is that uh, as this has been, this was, and remains the official policy of the United States government, which is we recognize uh, com- the uh, Communist Party regime in Beijing as the only government of China. China claims Taiwan as a province of China. And, uh, and, and says that it is part of Chinese territory, the United States does not give, um, does not have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan at all. Um, it, we have sort of an informal relationship. Uh, in other words, like there's no Taiwanese, um, there's no Taiwanese uh, consulate or embassy in the United States. Uh, the, uh, a Taiwanese passport does not get you an automatic visa into the United States. It's almost a useless passport. 
Um, and so legally, as far as the U.S. is concerned, Taiwan is 100% a part of China. H however, uh, in the real world, Taiwan is de facto independent. Um, Taiwan has its own currency, its own stamps, it has its own military, which is uh, armed and supported by the United States. Um, it is a, uh, you know, it, it is, it is a, uh, a, an economic uh, powerhouse, and um, and so, you know, basically, but it's but the thing that's weird to me about Biden's remarks <clears throat> is the fact that, you know, if as far as the U.S. is concerned, if China invading Taiwan is the same as the United States invading Ohio, um, it's part of as far as the U.S. State Department is concerned, Taiwan is part of China. I mean, China can't invade itself. And so it's like, I mean, obviously that isn't really true. But I mean, it seems to me like if we want to defend Taiwan and give them that kind of guarantee, Taiwan needs to declare independence and we need to recognize Taiwan as the Republic of Taiwan. Um, and, and, then, and then we can issue that kind of guarantee. But this is, it's not, as far as we're concerned, a sovereign state. Which is weird because, I mean, clearly, for, you know, th and thank you for the history lesson. I mean, some things I frankly didn't know. Um, but oh, I should like also say that Chiang Kai-shek died in the 80s. And uh, interestingly, uh, Taiwan did metastasize peacefully into a, demo a vibrant democracy. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and it's like it became a, a you know, a multi-party um, like kind of like really rowdy democracy. Sometimes the uh, the deputies, uh, the parliamentary deputies, start punching each other on the floor of parliament, which I would love to see here. Wouldn't that be um, great? And they, you know, yeah, it's like, hey, Marjorie. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Getz, that was my daughter. <laughs> um, why? I'm okay. So let me uh, just follow up and ask why why is taiwan not independent today why i mean does taiwan i know that taiwan has clung to the fiction that they are you know for many years at least when i was a kid that they were the de facto you know government in exile of china which of course was absurd um but like you said they've built a vibrant economy a vibrant democracy they uh, it sounds like historically they have a very distinct ethnicity you do why why don't why why not be independent? Why not just be a, a standalone country? Um, the simple answer is fear. When you talk to Taiwanese people, they think they're convinced that if they declare independence, and this is not true of all Taiwanese people. I mean, there's the DPP, the Democratic the Democratic Progressive Party is the left-leaning pro-independence party. Uh, people who adhere to that party tend to believe, hey, fuck it, let's do it. Let's declare independence. What are the Chinese going to do? Risk World War III over, over us? Probably not. And I think they're right. Uh, but then the K more pro-KMT people, ironically, uh, the KMT was never banned. It's still a legal party in Taiwan. Um, they and ironically has become pro-China. Things change. It's, politics are weird. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> I think what would happen is uh, so the the Taiwanese are afraid. They think that if they were to declare independence, the Chinese would in, uh, the Chinese would invade. Uh, they think it would be a needless provocation, and they think it would either be World War III because the United States would get involved and they'd be in the crossfire, or that the United States would not get involved and the Chinese would march in and they'd all be killed. And it would be Hong Kong. Well, I mean, they, the Chinese showed what they, you know, how they, how how trustworthy they are on their agreements and with that. 
Um, well, the, the Chinese have never uh, even made any representations to the Taiwanese to say that they would have uh, one country, two systems like they re- like they did uh, guarantee to Hong Kong. Uh, Taiwan, they say, is according to China, is a full integral part of the, of China historically and legally and diplomatically has always been, always will be, and the only reason they haven't invaded is or I should say gone over there, uh, is just because they haven't gotten around to it. They've been busy, uh, but they can, it's kind of like, we can come anytime where we're, we're, we we're that's ours. Don't, don't fucking forget it. Um, yeah, we, you know, granted it's been half a century. Um, probably the Chinese should have done this a long time ago. I mean, it is, it's anybody's guess what China would do. I mean, certainly, uh, when I visited China, uh, I talked to, uh, a surprising number of young people who said that they would be willing to go to war over Taiwan, that Taiwan is absolutely, it's a point of national pride, that it's absolutely part of China and should be brought back even at force of arms. Um, other, other, and, and you know, it's like, I, I didn't talk to anybody who said like, are you kidding that little fucking Island who cares about them? But, but I do, but you know, who knows what the Chinese would do, but I mean, the next step, I remember having this conversation with my father-in-law where I would say, you know, like he would, I mean, they had the Taiwanese independence movement, they had incredibly weird schemes. Um, they had this one idea. Well, for example, they, they argued that the surrender treaty that Japan signed um, somehow implies that Taiwan was meant to qualify for uh, 50 for statehood in the United States as the, you know, I guess they would become the 51st state of the U.S. and that the, and that that would protect them from Chinese invasion. Well, that um, probably would. It probably would. But uh, it, I would think that would be actually perhaps a bigger that vote might be a bigger uh provocation to China than just simply declaring independence. I mean, I think, you know, to me, the way one would thread that needle would be to declare independence with the, with with a promise that one would not view each other as adversaries, like sort of like what Russia wants Ukraine to agree to, where um, basically say, we're not adversaries. We want close diplomatic and economic ties we think you guys are super cute and we love you. And, uh, but yeah, but we're independent. So it'd be great if you guys didn't come here, but you kind of don't have to come here because we'll be friends anyway. Um, that would be, I think the way to do this, but, but basically this is one of those, this is one of those situ- diplomatic situations like Kurdistan that has been kicked. This can has been kicked down the, the road for decades and that's never smart. And it's and, you know now it's it it threatens to become a crisis. Well, explain the uh, Kurdistan comment. Well, Kurdistan. Yeah, so Kurd, the, you know me. <laughs> the Kurds have a de facto independent uh, state. They have de facto independence uh, in a breakaway republic in what use in what is northern Iraq. Um, they also have a population across the border in Turkey, um, but the Kurds, you know, they have this area. They they it's well run. They have a uh, it's not really a democracy, but they but it's they have a strong economy. They have oil. They have um, the you know it's 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 a it's as Middle Eastern places go. It's pretty well pretty well run, and uh, the Kurds were promised their own ethnic homeland. Uh, under the treaty uh, that ended uh, the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War One, but literally uh, the Brits, the French, 
uh, and the Americans who were, uh, you know, hanging out with the cartographers for months at the Palace of Versailles in Paris, um, literally forgot about the Kurds as they were waiting <laughs> out in the hall. I mean, you can look true? this up. It is true. There's a book called Paris 1919. They literally just are like, we'll get to y'all. We'll get to y'all. And then it's like, oh, fuck. It's like, oh, we'll catch you later at the next conference, literally, which never happened. So the Kurds were forgotten about. And um, they, they ended up having to fight <laughs> for their independence. And in the chaos of the U.S. invasion of Iraq that, you know, sort of destroyed the country and reduced it to a failed state, the Kurds seized the opportunity to declare independence. And they also provided assistance to uh, the U.S. in such a way that the U.S. kind of was like, okay, you guys, thank you. You guys can have your little uh, pseudo state up there in northern Iraq. Which, of course, Turkey takes great umbrage to for some weird reason, because they, you know, every time they've tried to establish an independent state, Turkey just pitches a fit. Well, the Turks, the, uh, because the, the Turks have a, a large uh, Kurdish, a substantial Kurdish population, and they're restive and they want independence. They want to break away territory from Turkey. And Turkey is uh, not, isn't having it. They don't want to lose any territory to uh, independent Kurdistan. Um, even though the Kurds say all they really want is autonomy within Turkey. But that's, uh, you know, the Turks are just like, no, if we grant autonomy, uh, they'll be on their way to having an independent state. The Turks are probably not wrong about that. But let's bring this home. Why why your objection and your strenuous objection to what the president said in Japan, uh, I guess, a few days ago? Well, it's I mean, it's it's. Uh... First and foremost, it's illog it's illogical and irrational. Um, well, how, sh how should I say? For, for, I mean, first of all, he's got his hands full. He is literally provoking World War III with Russia over his support for Ukraine. Um, and so, while that's going on, does he want to does he want to provoke uh, another nuclear power, China, uh, in order to defend Taiwanese independence? And I guess the thing is. I would really, look, I, I would support Taiwanese independence. I think uh, Taiwan is de facto independent. They do have a discrete culture. Uh, the Chinese are obviously not coming back. The Taiwanese should declare independence uh, and, and the US should support that and acknowledge it. And so should the international community because it's recognizing reality. However, you know, the facts on the ground should be reflected by, you know, in diplomatic theory. But the the thing is that the Taiwanese have not done that. The uh, you can't guarantee the end the the end the sovereignty of a country that you don't recognize. It doesn't make sense. It violates all you know the, the entire way that the nation state system has been set up since Metternich since the eighteen hundreds. That's that's my objection. I don't know. What do you think, Scott? Um. Yeah. It's kind of a weird. Uh psychological place for Americans to be because because for decades we were told we're here we're friends Taiwan we're here to defend them um you know and it really has I think kept China from invading is the threat that the United States would get involved in that conflict um the, sure. you know, and you mentioned Nixon you mentioned uh, Carter it really didn't change many especially the hawks um, uh, the conservatives uh in in the United States from continuing to support Taiwan and so I was you know I grew up with that um should but you know as you point out you threaten nuclear uh, obliteration and nuclear holocaust for Ukraine again another country we have no diplomatic ties with we have no alliances with um yeah at least we recognize them as a nation state unlike taiwan 
Exactly. And well, and the United Nations does too. And um, thank God the United Nations has snapped to action on that one. Uh, he said, you know, <laughs> facetiously. Well, the, but, yeah. Speaking of the UN, Taiwan does not have a seat at the UN. It is not recognized internationally. It's it's recognized by a handful of like Pacific Island na- uh, nations, like Vanuatu, uh, as a, as a country. I think it's like thirteen countries or something recognized out of two hundred and eleven recognized Taiwan. I mean, it is a it's it's not recognized as a country. It should be, but you know that starts with the Taiwanese. I remember having this debate with my grand with my uh, father in law, and he would you know he would say like, well, why doesn't the world give us independence? And I said, look at East Timor, you have to declare independence. He said yes, and then the East Timorese got murdered. That's right. Uh, when Americans declared independence, they got murdered too. That's yeah. what happens when you declare independent. Independent freedom ain't free. It, it is. <laughs> and, and it's not free when you declare independence. You know, like if Quebec ever broke away from Canada, some Quebecois would get killed. You know, I mean, that's right? just how it no, is. No, with maybe oh, yeah. with kindness. No, nah, maybe with cheese curds. <laughs> yes, we will clog your arteries, eh? <laughs> okay, well, that's Ted again. Thank you. So now um, we're up to speed on that. We're going to break here and then we're going to go into segment number two where we're going to talk about Kamala Harris and where the Democrats are going next. Is there a next? That'll be a short segment. <laughs> Stick around. Welcome back to the DMZ of America podcast, episode 50. Like I said earlier, we're going to have a big, big announcement. Not right now, but coming up, I'm Scott Standis coming to you from the right. And I'm Ted Rall coming to you from the left. So <laughs> news organizations are reporting. I'm sorry. This is just like what, what an insult. Vice President Kamala Harris, who was put in charge of uh, to look into and help manage immigration policy for the Biden administration, now has absolutely positively zero. That's zero, folks. Zilch, nada. <laughs> immigration events on her schedule. She has apparently been de facto removed from that conversation. Um, why is this important? I mean, usually when a new administration comes in, the vice president is 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 charged with some issue. Uh, Ted and I were just talking before we came back about uh, Al Gore was put in charge of the Red Tape Commission or the uh, government bureaucracy trying to streamline and make use of the federal government more friendly, more user friendly, rather. Um, and he was allowed to continue that work and finished it <laughs> So, versus what's happening with Vice President Harris. You heard the um, you heard the comments from the president in the earlier segment, and he sounds and looks awful. He's going to be 80 in what? No, in November. In November, 80 years old, and he's an old 80. And um, 80 going on 100. So he's not running for re-election, no matter what he says. I, I recognize that he had to say that for the midterms, where they're going to get slaughtered, they being the Democrats. So, so we're the Democrats in 2024. How does this set the table? I mean, Kamala Harris, the fact that even the White House is now clearly, you know, if not um, overtly, at least uh, covertly, saying that she's not competent to handle a single issue. I mean, it's like one of those, you had one thing to do, one thing. <laughs> and you couldn't do it. And she couldn't do it. I mean, that's one of those issues that you go to the border, you have panels, you have committees, you have public meetings. You, I mean, it doesn't, it almost 
it's almost unnecessary that for the needle to be moved, but you at least look like you're engaged in the issue. And she just didn't care. She just, from everything I've seen, she just is incapable of that. So okay. there's only, I mean, I do think it's always important to be as fair as possible. Uh, personally, I, I can't stand her, but I, I, I think that, uh, she, you know, her in her defense, uh, apparently she was not able to get out of town nearly as much as she wanted to in part to deal with, uh, you know, the Northern Triangle, uh, you know, crises and stuff that was that's feeding the crisis at the border uh, because she because of the 50 50 Senate. Uh, she's the you know, mm-hmm. she's she has to cast uh, the tie breaking vote a lot. And she's ends up basically she's still a senator uh, in so many words. And uh, there's okay. been some complaining about that among her 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 crew and her supporters and i that's not in that's not completely invalid no okay that i mean that uh, that clearly makes sense but you can still i mean you can have guess what they have committee rooms in washington dc did you know this ted i I have heard that they can have meetings there they can have and you can be engaged in this it's it's i just think it's a fascinating turn and it tells you that um the rumors we've been hearing over the last few months that the Biden White House is, and his staff has just found her to be very difficult to work with, or at least. And yeah, her staff and his staff do not get along. Well, when her staff isn't resigning, <laughs> what's left of her staff? Um, yeah, she lost what eighteen members of her staff in her first year. Um, it's it's I mean it's difficult. I I you know I kind of I, I, again you know me I love politics. I love good politics, and this you know you would hope that we would have a competent, I mean, I, I really had high hopes, much higher hopes with, about her than you did, Ted, when she came into office, when she, yeah, that's true. You president. were, yeah, you were, you were optimistic. Um, and unfortunately my optimism as usual for politicians has been thwarted. <laughs> well, um, optimism in general is, is kind of a risky proposition. I know we were having a discussion <laughs> yesterday, Ted and I talking about our spouses who are significant others who are, who we are, and, and how much we, you know, they're kind of optimists and we are not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and nine times out of 10, we're right. Yeah, that's true. Optimism is uh, not a good thing. <laughs> um. So where does this leave the Democrats in 2024? I mean, I, I really, it just looks, if the numbers are true, and if, I mean, every media organization, legitimate, illegitimate, off, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, all the polls show that they're just going to get thwarted badly and there's nothing they can do about it. They, the Democrats. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the the House is a certainty. I think the Senate is, you know, a certain, a virtual certainty. Um, it's a certainty. You know, I mean, it's gone. So, so here's the thing, right? I mean, so the the so basically, look, um, where do where do the Democrats find themselves next year, 2023, is effectively the first is the beginning of the presidential campaign, right? I mean, the first debates will probably be like in October or if something. the Republicans show up, which they've said they won't. Right, but I'm talking about the debates, the the primary, like the Democratic primary debates and stuff. Those are those are early. They they often begin before the yeah, actual yeah, election. Year. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So the so next year is the beginning of the campaign. So Democrats find themselves where uh, snake eyes all over. Right. I mean, no House, no Senate, no Supreme Court, uh, no ability to pass legislation. Uh, even if they like, you know, a, a Supreme Court justice dies. You know that the Republicans won't grant a vote 
to well, an up and down vote to Biden's nominee. We, that's already Mitch McConnell has already established that uh, with Merrick Garland. Uh, the economy is in trouble uh, with inflation really out of control. Uh, the there's the, it's a completely clean slate for the Democrats, as you point out, Scott. Biden's not running again. Harris uh, would be suicide. Uh, I think the, even the DNC recognizes that she can't be the nominee. Um, she might not even run. So where where does that leave us? I mean, it leaves it's a wide open field for the Democrats. And there's no you know, they don't have a deep bench like the Republicans do. They don't have any. And, and the thing is, whoever is running, let's just say that Biden somehow were miraculously able to turn the economy around, solve the crisis at the border, uh, get rid of covid uh, you know, get rid of, uh, you know, post-nasal uh, <laughs> drip, um, you know, he would be, Why wouldn't you know, matter because neither Harris nor Biden is going to be the nominee. So the thing is, so whoever is running has to be just sort of a charismatic Democrat. Um, you know, all the charismatic Democrats are like 14 years old now, right? They're, they're, it's the squad, basically. <laughs> and I don't think they're presidential material anyway. They're too young. And so, you know, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, obviously things, it's politics. It's a long time, but right now it's not looking good. No. Well, you've got, I guess, booted edges would, but I mean, no cabinet or very rarely does a cabinet officer come forward and get a, get the nomination, let alone win a general election. Mm. Uh, do you have democratic governors around the country? You have, I can't remember her name from Michigan. You know, the one who was, they were oh, Gretchen, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Yes, the people in the UP wanted to kidnap her. Um, I think you have Newsom. Although up. that apparently wasn't really true, right? It was apparently an entrapment situation. Uh, no, the trial is still going on. Or, but it was an entrapment thing. It was like, it, like in other words, it was like, you know, uh, the FBI was like, hey, don't you want to kidnap the governor? It's like, no, not really. You sure? Come on. You know you want to. No, uh, <laughs> really? Well, I've been drinking. So, yeah, OK, I'll do that. That's entrapment, you know? Well, but there's no doubt that uh, armed people stormed the Michigan. <laughs> it sounds so familiar. Stormed the Michigan Capitol, um, which was, by the way, totally legal. In the as Michigan as Michigan goes, so goes the nation. Uh, you got Newsom out in California. Yeah, I feel like Gavin Newsom. I feel like uh, I forget who did this cartoon. I really always want to give him credit because it was a great cartoon. But it reminds me of a cartoon when uh, John McCain ran for president uh, the last time with uh, Sarah Palin and uh, stamped across his, it's just a picture of, of McCain, his head and stamped across his forehead is, is that like milk like type thing that says best, best if used by 2000. <laughs> and I, I think that's true about uh, the governor Newsom. I think, uh, you know, his, uh, his, the shininess is off. You know, the bloom is off the rose. It's intangible, but it just feels like no, he survived his moment. Recall. I mean, but Ray his Davis moments passed. I mean, nobody cares about him anymore. I just feel like. I mean, they could put him up. I mean, he doesn't look as good. He he was pretty man. I mean, I was hot for him. He's like <laughs> like like now he's like he's all craggy and like spending too much time out in the California sun. Well, who else? Who do you have? I mean, here's the thing: the, the Republicans, obviously, you know, if 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 Trump is breathing, he will be the nominee for the Republican Party. Agreed. Um, if he's not breathing, then they have DeSantis, who they adore. Um, right. It's kind of a, and and it's from an important swing state. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, so they've got, they've got some charismatic people. And so, you know, from the Republican standpoint, and there's always the, the werewolf, uh, Ted Cruz. Yeah. That's who will bring in the key uh, werewolf vote. Werewolves of DC. Um, I love that. I mean, he would be, uh, you know, I think it's important, uh, you know, as, as historians of the American presidency to uh, favor anybody who would bring back facial hair to the white house. I was going to say the same thing. You and I are political button collectors. And so who was the last president with facial hair? Ooh, the first, the last one. one. Oh, Oh, it's Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. He had a mustache. Although um, the guy who ran against Wilson uh, and lost had facial hair. Oh, 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 yeah. Not nominees. I mean, nominees you had. Nominees who have Taft. Right. Uh, oh, in 1908. Right. Taft yes, had a, right. I'm sorry. Taft had a, right. A superb mustache. He did. He, he truly did have a manly mustache. But and then uh, and then who ran in 1916 against Wilson? Um, uh, Hughes, uh, Charles Evans Hughes had the that's best right. beard of, in the history of beards. That's true. M- magnificent. And uh, John, no, John Davis, uh, 1924, no, did not have a uh, beard. Dewey in 40 and 44 and 44 and 48. Wait, he had a he had a beard. He had a mustache. He had a mustache, right? He had like he had one of those like sort of uh, uh, like a Fred Astaire type mustaches, like sort yeah. of thin and a little, you know, like light in the loafers mustache. Uh, Harry Truman actually thought that's one of the reasons he lost because he he had the mustache during and right on the, right after World War II, where oh, you know, <laughs> there was a certain guy. I forget yeah. his name. Who had a funny <laughs> little mustache. Yeah. So they thought that. Anyway, so yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ted Cruz, what is it with that beard, man? I mean, I mean, some guys should have beards, some guys should not. Well, I think, honestly, I think Ted Cruz would look good with sort of a trimmed, I'm the same way, a trimmed Hamid Karzai tight beard could but work for he doesn't, him. But he has, but all these he, has a, he has like an alcoholic, like scraggly, like homeless man's beard. Well, he also has gaps all over the place. It's not a good. It's not a good look. It just isn't a good look. You can grow a beard. I've seen you grow one when you travel to the middle to um, Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, you had. That yeah, was... no. yeah, I know. My my son like always wants me to grow that big bad boy out. I I, I think it probably now would be very. I was going to say salt and pepper. It might be salt and pepper. <laughs> yeah, no. You can see I've, <laughs> I haven't shaved my uh, Grand Canyon stubble yet, and it's just white. It's anyway. <laughs> Actually, white well, beard looks good. I think. Yeah, I look like Santa. Actually, my my hair's not doesn't turn gray. It just, I mean, it doesn't turn like this magnificent white or this, you know. This, love, it just yeah, like the Ted Danson look. We, you don't have that. I don't have that. My hair just looks like it just gave up. <laughs> it's just like, you know. I don't know. I think your hair is your hair is youthful and uh, and and on top of my head, my beard though, it's just this weird gray. Anyway, getting back to. <laughs> the democratic this is how bad and how shallow the democratic bench is we're mm. talking about our facial hair <laughs> well yeah because there's no fucking i mean okay so seriously okay this is like the worst assignment but scott you're the king of the democratic party oh jesus what do you as the old american express ad said what do you do what do you do I think you find you you do you actually research it. You find the dark horse. You find the. Um, um, I think you find the Franklin Pierce. You know, I mean, I, I know that's a name that our listeners may not be used to, but he was he ran against um, uh, Clay, 
And Clay, when he heard that the Democrats had nominated peers, he said, damn, lost again. He Henry knew, Clay ran like four times, right? Yes. Yeah. He knew that. Uh, a dark and he was horse. a colossus of American politics. Oh, he, and he was. He was. A I colossus. mean, it's weird that he was never president. Really? He came close a couple of times, but never, never couldn't quite cross the finish line. And as a Whig, which is still makes me giggle that name of that party. Um, my point is that I think the Democrats are going to have to pull out someone that you and I are not very aware of. I mean, we're, we're wonks, so we may have. What about it. a celebrity? You know, they always talk. I hate this idea, but like an Oprah or like oh, a, Oprah would be. I mean, could you imagine an Oprah Trump? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, I think Trump would win because of racism and, and sexism. You know, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, wh- what about Al Franken? You know, I mean, Al Franken's been lying low. Me too has been kind of discredited. Thank you, Amber Heard. Um, you know, I don't know if it's been discredited. I, and I think that his the fact that he resigned, which he shouldn't have, in my view, um, because he he gave the mob what they wanted. And I no, he should not have resigned. No, um, I just, he didn't. He didn't really do anything. He and I actually got into a a, a yelling match. <laughs> At the car. Was he because he, he, he was grabbing your ass or what? No, no, he wasn't fake grabbing my breasts. Um, he he actually um, we were debate talking about airtime. And I was t- saying that during the 2000 election, uh, Gore got quoted verbatim. They showed video of him. And when they showed when the reporter who covered Bush, they would they would report what he said. And they did, they got equal time, but it was not equal time. And he said, that's true. How do you know this? I said, because I sat there and timed it (laughs) (laughs) because I was, I'd be in my office at the newspaper and I would watch the news Mm -hmm. and he was just, 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 no, that's not absolutely not true. Couldn't be true. Couldn't possibly be true. Couldn't be true. Of course it could be true. Why not? Well, okay. This is, you know, this is a partisan. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and he, he said, my, my, my assistants who, by the way, he never paid his interns, uh, were they paid, were they paid in fake boob grabbing? I think they were, uh, <laughs> and, and just laughter. And isn't that really the best thing? Enjoy. Not really. No, <laughs> no it really is. Yeah. I try to pay my mortgage with laughter and that just goes nowhere. <laughs> Ted. <laughs> I can't be honest with you, but I think Frank and I, I never was a fan. It's not, and it's not just that story. It's just personal. I never thought he'd. He was a good senator. He actually performed and took it seriously. That's true. But more seriously than you would ex- have expected, for sure. Yes. Well, more seriously than many of his, you know, more legitimate uh, cohorts there in the Senate. He really did his homework. He was studious. Uh, but I just don't think he seemed presidential. I'm trying to think. But you're right about I mean, you know, hey, listen, man, for 200 plus years, uh, we said you know, celebrities can't do it. We've nominated a few. They get trounced. Um, the late, the one before Trump, um, Reagan, uh, no, well, I'd say Wilkie Reagan had two terms. Reagan had, had, had been governor. Yeah, that's right. Of, a, of, forget, of the most populous state. Her people forget that he was also elected to, and he served for a very short period of time to the Los Angeles County community college board. Ah, Reagan. People forget well, that's that. Like, that's like how people forget that Eisenhower was president of Columbia University. How long it wasn't? Well, you know, I, it wasn't for very long. I think it was like for four years. Do they have portraits of him? You went to Columbia. Do they have portraits of him? 
Uh, there is a port. Yeah. So, yeah, he, there's a building called President's House because it's officially the residence of the pres- of the president of the university. But the president rarely lives there. Uh, the president usually is an spectacularly wealthy Upper East Sider with his own personal townhouse worth millions. And uh, but Eisenhower lived there and uh, he liked to paint. Uh, he he liked to paint, and he he painted uh, out the window, looking over Harlem, outside over Morningside Park, toward Queens and in the Bronx. And there is um, a, in that room where he painted, there is a portrait of the uh, soon-to-be president, wow, former uh, former uh, Supreme Commander of the uh, Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe. In Europe. Oh, fascinating. So, okay. So I'm just trying to think of, you know what, here's the thing. I'm going to leave it at this because we got to go on to the next segment, but um, I, I'm going to invite people either on the Facebook or Facebook page or Twitter. Um, go ahead and leave a comment and let us know who you're, if you were the, you know, as Ted said, King of the Democrats, who would you want as your nominee in 2024? You can, you know, you can say, and, Biden. and you're not allowed to pick Harris or Biden because not? that's not, because that's not going to happen. So we need we need to hear someone else. I don't know if an incumbent runs. It's awfully damn hard. I mean, if Biden actually decides to run. Oh, God. <laughs> really? I mean, the, the, the man's going to die any second. I mean, what? He really does look awful. And he just I mean, and you he heard- sounds horrible. He's so feeble. I mean, yeah, yeah. just listen to his voice. I the mean, tenor, yeah, the tenor- I feel sorry for him. I mean, honestly, he's being subjected to elder abuse. Uh, to be forced to do this job. I mean, it is ridiculous. I mean, he's doing the best he can. It's not good enough. Leave your comments on Facebook or, and we'll try to, to, to talk about it next week. So uh, we'll be back and we have a big, 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 big announcement. Well, it's a big announcement. It's not that big. <laughs> Back to the DMZ America podcast. I'm Scott Stans coming to you from the right. And coming to you from the left, I remain Ted Raw. <laughs> As always, Ted Raw. <laughs> uh, listen, we I, I keep teasing this. We've got some great, great, great news. Um, I'm I'm really I'm I'm stoked. I'm incredibly grateful to my friend Ted Rawl for including me in this. Months ago, he put out word that he wanted to, he was looking for artists to work with on graphic novels. And I kind of furtively said, Can you think about maybe me? <laughs> And he said, absolutely. And so we worked on this. Well, I was really surprised that you'd be even into it. I was amazed and flattered. Well, and here's, I'll tell you why. I mean, and our listeners, and I'll be perfectly honest here that you're you're a success at this. You're you're a New York Times bestselling graphic novelist. uh, You've done a number of them. And I wanted to learn from you because um, this may come as a surprise to you, Ted, and many of our listeners, but newspapers uh, may not be around much longer i've heard there i've heard they're they're having they've been suffering some uh some, some headwinds um, <laughs> yes, some headwinds. yes that's exactly what i would call it <laughs> if, if by headwinds you mean flatulence at roughly the speed of twice the speed of sound <laughs> yeah it's um and so looking to see what's next so uh ted had a project he wanted uh, was looking for a a artist to work with. Uh, I was happy to join him and we are going to announce right now that we have signed a contract. True. It is and true. And 
the publisher with a with a book publisher, not like with the mafia. Right. And the book publisher is NBM Publishing, which uh, is the oldest uh, continuously publishing graphic novel publisher in the United States. Uh, they've been doing this since the 1970s. Uh, they've published a number of my previous books, including my most recent, my current book, The Stringer, which is uh, I wrote and uh, another artist, Pablo Calejo, uh, drew that. And uh, so this will be analogous to that in that uh, I, I will have written uh, this upcoming tome and you, Scott, will have drawn it. And, uh, you know, we've already seen how to, we've already started. There's a number of pages already in the can. Uh, we, I, I probably should finish writing the story. Yeah, you I should. Guess. <laughs> that would be nice. But it's called, <laughs> can I, I can say the name. Yep. Yep. American Messiah. And it's a fascinating story. Um, it, it, uh, Don't give too much away. It's a fascinating they won't story pay for it. And it is beautifully illustrated. Yes, by <laughs> an incredibly good looking man with magnificent mane of hair. <laughs> a young cartoonist, perhaps. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Perhaps no. the most politically progressive cartoonist of our time. Or perhaps, <laughs> perhaps not. Or perhaps about not. Perhaps. Anyway, I'm, I'm really excited about this. I mean, I think this is where a lot of people in our profession would like their careers to move. I actually had a conversation with a former uh, syndicate executive the other day, um, and he said that that is exactly where virtually every editorial cartoonist is trying to go. I can tell you that. Um, I don't um, think they can. I mean, I think they're all smart enough. I just don't know if they can do it because it's graphic novels are, are their own. I mean, some people can do it, but graphic novels are their own thing. They're uh, they're kind of a beast. As, they are. I've they're, learned, I'm learning this. <laughs> yeah, they're they're they're. You know, it's like you have to draw, let's say, a hundred, a hundred, or two hundred pages or more. Um, you know, to, and it's a lot of art, and uh, you know, it's 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 hard to see the forest for the trees when you're working on it. Um, and it doesn't always pay that great. So it rarely pays that great. I mean, it literally pays. I think, I think we are one of the lucky ones who are actually getting a seven figure <laughs> in, in cents. <laughs> yes. No, we're, we're actually getting a uh, four figure. Yeah. So it's six. Yeah. So no, we're getting, yeah, it does not pay folks. It does, but that's not why I'm doing it. Yeah. I, we're kind all, of, it's a, it's for the creative thing, of course. It's yeah. about doing something fun and interesting, and something that's going to stick around longer than like the birdcage liner that we used to work for. Um, and then also, uh, it's you know, there's always a chance that one of these things will become a uh, a film or a TV show or something. Well, just those two. Really. When I wanted to break into, I wanted to do children's books and picture books, uh, and I have a uh, I have a outline for a young adult novel series i mean that's just this is the direction i'm my life's going to go for the next few years and I, this is exciting to me and to work with ted is uh you know uh, it's, 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 yeah, well, I mean, it's crazy because scott you and i have been friends for like i guess two decades maybe oh at least at least, at least. and like in a, we've never worked together um it, we've uh so this is this is definitely fun you know it's one of those things you i think I think you kind of have to wait till you've known someone long enough. Cause it's like a marriage. You have to really be sure. I mean, I, you know, work, I mean, I'm not kidding collaboration, you know, I'm an only child. Uh, I, you know, it's, it, it's like, I have to really be sure before I work with someone that like. Yeah. I tend to go the exact to. opposite. I'm like collaboration. Come on, let's go. And it's, <laughs> it's not, you know, the guy doesn't show up or, you know, like, so this is, uh, but 
I, I'm I'm totally stoked. So um, we don't have obviously have a release date. We're still producing the thing. We have a deadline of ne- early next year, true, uh, early 2023, and then uh, we can have another another big announcement. And we'll and, probably and, do a book and of tour. course, and of course, uh, Scott, I would be remiss to point out that I don't know if you read the fine print in the contract, but what happens if the artist doesn't deliver by deadline? Um, Flamethrower oh, drone. Some, yeah, something gets cut off. Something gets cut off. And I flamethrower drone. You know. <laughs> flamethrower drone. <laughs> uh, NBM is has its own fleet of flamethrower drones. So really? wow. Well, they need they probably need them. They work with artists. Yeah, yeah it's true. Uh yeah. We're so the next few the next uh, year is going to be um putting the head down and just you know, getting this thing done. And um, so I'm, I am really, really, really excited about it. And I, I think that the, um, the editorial cartooning world is going to scratch their head and the great, wait, who's working with who? I know. I kind of like that. Um, you know, I mean, they already can't believe we're friends and that we're doing this. We made it to podcast number big five zero. I mean, you know, it's, they still can't believe we're friends. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like, they're it's, like, Oh, that's fucked up. It's because you know, people who won't be friendly with me because of my perceived politics. I do. Yeah. Um, people who should know better, frankly, uh, people who uh, I'm friends with who are on the left, who are, I thought, intelligent, but apparently not that intelligent. Um, you know, I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. I don't, I don't know if I want to live in a world where, uh, you know, you can't be friends with someone because you differ on politics. And I maybe I'm crazy about this. I kind of feel like if you differ on politics even a little bit, you kind of differ completely if you know what i mean like like a corporatist democrat i don't feel any closer politically to a corporatist democrat than i do to a right wing than than i do to, you know what i mean like i don't feel closer to them than i do to a right wing conservative to me yeah. it's like they're different you know and so if you're not exactly the same then you're not you know ideological comrades and you know most people aren't there's usually some sl- gradation of difference well, I feel the same way. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'm as close to you as I, you know, and, and I can't, I, I don't know. That, I think I could probably be closer to a progressive Democrat or progressive than I would be to a Trump Republican. Right. In some ways it makes sense. Right. I mean, because it's, it's the, the willingness to look out, to step outside the box and um, you know, I don't know. Corporate Democrats. Oof. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> so, so okay. I'm very much looking forward to this. Uh, this uh, serves as a reminder that I need to get you some script, which yes, I will. And I have, a, I, have a, I have a page plot laid out. That's that's helpful. That's cool. Well, yeah, and there's like the damn there's like 12 pages done, which look magnificent. So yeah, I'm uh, pretty happy with them. I think NBM's happy with them. So yeah, it's going to be good. Um, people are going to be like, well, what's this book about? We'll we'll talk about that a little more. Uh, let's just say that it's a it's a it's obviously religion is involved. I think you know that's not a big giveaway. And social media, right? That too. So all right. Well, so you want to take okay, us out? So we're, so where can we see your stuff, Ted? Uh, you can always go to whowhatwhy.org on Saturdays where they, they run my cartoon. You go to sputniknews.com. Uh, yes, it's Russian state media, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, don't look for it on Twitter or Facebook because it'll probably be blocked. Uh, you can Have also, you been unblocked? Because you were blocked. I'm still blocked, man. What? Yeah, no, I, I'm blocked. Um, oh, oh you mean uh, me personally? Uh, yeah, no, I got deblocked, but I have like restrictions. Apparently, I I can't post to groups, which is fine because I never post to groups anyway. Um, and um, 
but yeah, I'm, I'm restricted for another three weeks or something. Jesus. Every time I log onto my Facebook the, on the, on the phone, it says like this account is restricted by Mark Zuckerberg and his flamethrower drone. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. Anyway, so I'm trying to think what else. Oh yeah. My website, raw.com, R-A-L-L.com. And your new novel or this or uh, the stringer is the current uh, book. Uh, you can order it directly through my website, raw.com, or you can cheap out and get it from Amazon or some other scoundrels. Uh, how many books have you written? Because I was trying to look at my, my Ted Raw shelf and there's a lot there. And I think some are missing. I think probably they've been stolen by, by brigands. Um, I think there's 21. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That, that is really, that's, and this will be big number 22. Okay. Uh, you can see my stuff at gocomics.com slash Scott Stantis, one word, or gocomics.com slash Prickly City, which is my comic strip, political in nature. Uh, you can go to chicagotribune.com slash opinion and look at a gallery of the work I do for them. And Ted and I also do work for Counterpoint, which is a subscription-based newsletter with some of the best editorial cartoonists in the nation. So uh, with that being said, uh, Ted, thanks. And Thank you, happy, Scott. Happy 50th. Yeah. Happy. This is the gold anniversary, right? It's 50. Yeah, I, I didn't get you anything. What? I was kind of hoping you'd get me like, a, you know, the uh, Joe, the uh, William McKinley gold bug <laughs> pin for my collection. That's a real thing. You know, I know it's a big bug. It's so cool. Next time. All right. All right. The all right. Next time. What comes after 50? We'll be back. <laughs> with the next podcast until then we'll see you in the funny papers au revoir